Patients always want exact answers. I know when I go to the doctor, I too want specific answers to specific questions, and I rarely get them. Similarly, when cannabis patients ask me detailed questions, often the answers are also elusive. The best medicine is individualized medicine, and by definition, individualized medicine is going to be somewhat unique to every person. That said, when it comes to cannabis, if you identify the proper blend of cannabinoids and start slow and low in the dosage, a path to resolving the issue usually presents itself. Cannabis is safe for nearly everyone, and humans have had thousands of years to get into relationship with the plant and learn it to be reliable and with few side effects. However, when you add complex chemical pharmaceuticals to the mix, sometimes things don't go as planned, and most pharmaceuticals have only been around for a mere fraction of the time that cannabis has been used by humans. And also, while a layperson can easily understand the dosing dynamics for cannabis, that is entirely untrue for most pharmaceuticals whose contents are intentionally obscured and instructions for use are shrouded in legally defendable double talk. It is enough to frustrate anyone just trying to get well. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we are giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. This month's sponsor is Multiverse Beans at multiversebeans.com. Ten winners will randomly receive a free three-pack of feminized seeds from either Gnome Automatics or Humboldt Seed Company. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. And be sure to check out the Multiverse Beans Instagram. You are listening to Shaping Fire and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Jehan Marku. Dr. Marku is a molecular pharmacologist with over 15 years of experience in cannabinoid research and a PhD focusing on the pharmacology of cannabinoids. Not only is Jehan a committed scientist, but he goes way back to as a cannabis activist and policy influencer. Dr. Marku is a founding partner at the consulting firm of Marku and Aurora, which provides life science consulting to the cannabis and psychedelic fields. He's also chief scientific officer at Physicians Research Center Plus. Jehan also co-developed a biotech application to predict drug-drug interactions between cannabis and commonly prescribed pharmaceutical drugs, and co-authored one of the first product safety studies on CBD. Dr. Marku co-authored American Herbal Pharmacopoeia's Cannabis Quality Control and Therapeutic Monographs and serves on multiple expert government advisory and trade association committees. He is the founding editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Endocannabinoid Medicine and is adjunct faculty at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia, teaching the pharmacology of cannabis. He has many research and media publications and has appeared in Rolling Stone, Science, Nature, JAMA, The Washington Post, CNN, and many others. He is host and producer of the How to Launch an Industry podcast and is often called upon as a cannabis and synthetic drug expert witness. Dr. Marku has received numerous awards, including the Mahmoud El Soli Award for Excellence in Cannabis Chemistry and the Billy Martin Research Achievement Award from the International Cannabinoid Research Society. 
On today's episode of Shaping Fire, we will talk about how to think through the dynamic challenges presented by cannabis and pharmaceutical interaction and give you a roadmap for doing this research for yourself or the cannabis patients you care for. During the second set, we will review red flag pharmaceuticals and drug families that present especially high risk and how the availability of new cannabinoids and concentrates has exacerbated these issues. And in the third set, we look at the differences between endocannabinoid and phytocannabinoid drug interaction, discuss the state of drug-drug interaction research, and we encourage everyone who uses cannabis to visit budsinfo.com and complete a short questionnaire to help in the research into this topic. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Jehan. Thank you, Shango. It's great to be here. You know, like even though you and I have interacted over the years, this is episode 104, and your last visit to appear on Shaping Fire was all the way back on episode 29. And that seems like such a long time ago. In fact, it was the week of Christmas in 2017. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was like like back back in the before times, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so much as it seems like that seems like a lifetime ago for so many things and projects. Um, that's amazing. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and that was in the early days of shaping fire when we focused a bit more on business. So, um, episode twenty nine is a great one about cannabis product manufacturing uh, standards, and we don't cover the licensed market as much anymore. But, um, folks, if you're if you are in licensed cannabis or in in you know in medical cannabis and in production, that's a really excellent show that has remained evergreen over the years. So, so yeah. I encourage you to go back and and check out episode twenty nine if you haven't uh, i but, would say uh-huh. uh you know the big update to that though is i've gone from you know voluntary certification assessments for regulatory compliance on all types of cannabis operations around the world and since then i actually got to visit hemp facilities in china uh, europe and i've started to work with um, state governments on you know determining compliance assessment criteria and updating regulations you know, driven by science from that experience. So, you know, I feel like you're, uh, you're like the paleontologist, Shango, you got to walk with, uh, <laughs> you know, a dinosaur like me in the early days. That's, that's, I guess that's one way to put it, except you're, <laughs> you're, you're still so young though. So I hope so. Cause I think you're younger than me. So, um, so, so, but, but today we're here to talk, to talk and focus on the interplay between cannabis and the pharmaceuticals that cannabis patients may be taking. And we both want to be clear right off the bat that we are not giving you medical advice today. Uh, we have no way of knowing your actual whole situation. And our goal today is to flesh out some of the intricacies of this topic and, and help you gain some perspective so that you can figure out effective individualized medicine for yourself or the people that you care for. So, so all right, let's get right into it. So, Jehan, the idea that any one of so many phytocannabinoids interacting with any one of thousands of prescription drugs that they could have an unintended side effect seems like a pretty realistic thing nowadays but for years in the medical cannabis community no one wanted to admit that it was possible including me and and maybe it was simply because there was so little research into it or and we just hadn't seen it um but also it could also just be that we're all really protective of our favorite plant cannabis but now we know that these interactions actually do exist as as more and more people use cannabis and we're able to collect more data are we actually seeing more reports of interactions nowadays yeah um 
the potential for drug drug interactions regardless of the substance you know cannabis has compounds that interact with receptors and are metabolized by our body um, else it wouldn't have all these you know wonderful therapeutic benefits that we hear about um, but but drug drug interactions or ddis are are increasing generally across the board not just for cannabinoids or cannabis but it is the primary cause of adverse drug reactions and it's it's something that creates over half a billion dollars of estimated burden on our healthcare system annually and there's a lot of efforts to avoid these drug drug interactions um, you know, drug regulatory agencies like the FDA usually mandate this sort of thing. And we know a lot about them for some stuff uh, for like Marinol, which was approved, you know, a decade or so before we even knew there were cannabinoid receptors, as well as for Epidiolex or CBD. So these have been explored. Uh, but what we're dealing with now is, you know, we live in a really lucky time and in a really lucky place. If you're listening to this in the United States, we have the FDA. And I know that people like to criticize the FDA. Well, that's that's great. That's, that's, that's one of the great things about being alive. You get to criticize things. But it's also the best drug regulatory agency. In fact, it's so good that most of us simply throw away the insert on any medication we get. It's like as this long fold-out map of potential issues. And we're like, oh, just throw that away. This is FDA approved. Um, so we do live in a time where we buy a loaf of bread, we buy a bottle of aspirin, we get our prescription medications, and we just assume that if it's on a shelf, it's safe and, and the risks um, you know, are known or, they wouldn't, or it wouldn't be on a shelf. Um, however, you know, there's interesting things are happening with cannabis compounds you know, due to a strong patient and consumer demand. Cannabis-based products don't follow the traditional standard drug development pipeline that we hold pharmaceutical drugs like, you know, antidepressants or other drugs, too. They just, you know, you package and label them at the state level. And so there is a lack of understanding or appreciation of the potential drug-drug interactions. Um, and again, a lot of these occur from, you know, oral administration of multiple substances. Sort of the more drugs that you use, the more pharmaceutical drugs, the more medicines you take, the higher your chances of interactions. Um, and, you know, this is not, you know, we have to kind of like, you know, I've been a passionate advocate of product safety, particularly for medical cannabis patients for, for almost two decades. And, you know, I remember a time when the plant products weren't even tested before giving to people who had compromised immune systems. Um, I remember arguing with uh, operators to put voluntarily put expiration dates and people saying things like, well, cookies don't go bad. Um, mm. and, and, but again, we, we see drug-drug interactions all the time. We talk about them all the time, but we don't know that we're talking about them. Some of them are for our benefit, and some of them can increase risk. Um, let me give you an example of a conversation I had 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. Uh, I was just a just a little researcher at the time, an undergraduate, and I approached a cannabis operation and started talking them up about CBD. You should carry CBD products. This is like going to be a great thing. And people had started small circles to talk about, and they asked me what it did, and I said, "Oh, well, it 
it actually blocks the intoxicating effects of THC. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh my God, that sounds terrible. Nobody will ever want that. But CBD and THC is a form of a drug-drug interaction. It's not quite what we're talking about, but it can be um, one that may not be ideal um, for some people. Uh, you know, So I think that when we talk about drug-drug interactions, we talk about them. We talk about, oh, this variety of cannabis has this mixture of compounds. It's good for this. It helps with this. It it's, has these indications. Um, there's an array that can be present. Um, so I think we always have to keep in mind that we are familiar with this. We talk about it. You know, it's like saying, I like to talk about, you know, baseball statistics, but I don't like math. Well, clearly you do like math because you're analyzing averages and percentages. So we, we do have the fundamentals of this, I think, in the industry. So we're not really talking about, I think, anything new today that you, that you probably haven't, you know, discussed before. How do drugs interact together to produce an effect? And let's talk about that how a little bit, um, because the different mechanisms, um, I think it's important for people to wrap their heads around. The, the, the first interaction that I was aware of was years ago learning that uh, CBD can increase the potency of some seizure medications, meaning that the seizure patients taking CBD could sometimes take less of that seizure medication and get the same um, effect in some cases. Let's dissect that idea, because the CBD could be causing the seizure medication to be more potent for many reasons. One being perhaps that the CBD and the seizure medication are doing the same thing and working side by side instead of actually on each other. Or secondly, CBD could be acting in a way that the seizure medication has get, gets more resources or something. There's a lot of different mechanisms for why that could be happening. And, um, you know, I, I know that you have studied in detail these different mechanisms of drug-drug interaction. I'd really appreciate it if you would tease them apart and explain a few of them. And like, take your time. Give us, give us like three or four so that we can really grok the different mechanisms. <laughs> you know, a- absolutely. And when we talk about mechanisms, um, you know, we can, I like to think about them in three ways. One is cannabinoids as victim right, where the mechanism is that the levels of the cannabinoid is changed. You take a drug, and it makes the, you take, you, and you take it with THC, let's call it drug X, right, and you take it with a THC product, and suddenly you're feeling way more sedated or have way higher munchies side effect or whatever, pick your side effect for your conceptual example, and it's just, it's increased because the cannabinoid levels are changed by another drug. So cannabinoid is a victim where its levels in your body are changed. Well, cannabinoids can also be perpetrators. They can cause changes in the levels of another drug. Um, And so in this case, you know, they might be increasing or decreasing the amount of, like you said, like an anti-epileptic medication or a pain medication. And if this information is well understood, you're absolutely right. It can be leveraged to improve uh, healthcare outcomes. You know, if you're like, oh, there's a drug-drug interaction between cannabinoids and opioids, you can take less opioids and get the same effect. Wow. We, thank goodness we knew about those interactions so that we could take steps to make that a benefit instead of an increased risk. Now, there also are, so we've talked about cannabinoids as victims, cannabinoids as perpetrators, 
And there are also pharmacodynamic effects. I think that's the first uh, five-syllable word we've mm. used so far. But there are <laughs> pharmacodynamic effects. And what this means is that both drugs have overlapping effects, and our concepts of victim and perpetrator don't apply here. But, you know, one thing is like if we take uh, research on THC and baclofen, individually at doses given to people in studies is a little bit of sedation, not too much to write home about. But you put them together, there's like sedation coming from that drug, sedation coming from the other drug, and put it together, sedation plus sedation equals a lot of sedation. Um, and that could be an unwanted side effect, an adverse effect. Um, and so as we continue with this victim and perpetrator analogy, you know, you mentioned cannabidiol, CBD. And I think this is a great example because, you know, here we have a drug that is given to pediatric patients in large amounts who are also taking other medications. And in the, you know, I think even several years ago, starting, I think Davinsky published a paper in 2018 and those of you listening can email me, uh, message me on social media. If anything I mention, you're like, I want that study. Send me that link. Uh, feel free to reach out. But, you know, they show that high doses of CBD significantly increased levels of narclobazam, um, which is an active metabolite of clobazam. So basically what you're saying is you have a baseline amount. Let's call the baseline zero. It's just or normal, right? Um, and so when you take it with um, CBD... Um, you can start to see that uh, the amounts of clobazam and the ratio of clobazam to norclobazam, the metabolite and the, 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 the parent compound, just go a little haywire. You start to see those levels change, if almost completely different than without CBD. We're talking, um, you know, the, the, we're seeing, you know, 150, 200, 350% above baseline. Those, uh, you know, those bars on the graph look like skyscrapers of New York City, which is a signal that we need to pay more attention to. And that would be an example of a cannabinoid as a perpetrator of a drug-drug interaction. Um, and so how is this happening, you might be saying? Well, we have a lot of things in our bodies that like to handle drugs. Um, you know, we're, we're hardwired to... Uh, consume things, have them hit little proteins, also known as receptors throughout our body, and send along little messages. Well, however, we have to have a system that gets rid of the drugs after they've sort of sent their message to the brain, to the body, and had their effect. And we have these drug metabolizing enzymes. What do they do? Well, they are the garbage trucks of drugs. They just like, they like chewing up drugs and helping us pee them out. Um, so the enzymes are responsible for this. So when I say enzymes, I say proteins, I say receptors. These are all things that our body makes from our DNA, right? We have, we have DNA that codes amino acids that form these proteins. And proteins can do a lot of different things. And these CYP P4, uh, CYP450, we call them SIPs uh, for short, for short for cytochrome P450. Um, there are many different forms. And, um, you know, there are, um, you know, we inherit different ones from our family. And I think this next point is important. 
important because with the advent of gene testing, you can find out some information about how you might uh, metabolize drugs. So um, there are people who are slow metabolizers, like really poor. That means the drugs stick around longer. There are people that are intermediate metabolizers. There's people who are extensive. And then there are people who are ultra rapid. And that means that if you're an ultra rapid metabolizer, you can take a drug and you may not even feel, or you may feel just the faintest of effects for it before it's metabolized and excreted from your body. There are some really wild examples of this. Um, uh, you know, for example, um, there is an association with, because um, people who, who suffer from uh, genetically from sickle cell disease, uh, they have some genes uh, in the majority of the population that are conserved. And many of them are ultra-rapid metabolizers of opioids. And frequently people with sickle cell disease get prescribed the maximal allowed amount of opioids, which has been steadily decreasing over time, but they tend to be ultra-rapid metabolizers. So whereas most average people would probably fall in the intermediate, in the mid-range of drug metabolizing, um, and, and a, a little opioid goes a long way, there are populations that would rapidly just and wouldn't feel an effect. So it looked really weird on someone's chart at a doctor, like, wow, you're taking a lot of opioids. But unless you knew the genetic component and the other drugs they were taking, it may not make a lot of sense. So one is uh, to know thyself, right? And so using kind of all available tools to understand, first of all, from a baseline, how do I, what, how do I even metabolize drugs? Am I the type of person who can drink coffee all day long and go to sleep because I'm a rapid metabolizer or will just smelling a cup of coffee keep me up for three days. Like these might be things you can playfully tease out. And so the reason I want to mention that, cause that is a factor um, with this um, stuff. Cause there are people who have mutations, uh, polymorphisms, uh, a single little change um, can cause people to be, you know, much more uh, say, you know, it can change the amount of THC that's even in their body. So if you are a slow metabolizer of THC, you'll have more THC floating around. Um, and much like someone floating around with nothing to do, they might get into trouble. And so that is increases the, the chances of a drug-drug interaction. So you could, you could have be a slow metabolizer and realize that, you know, I have to be careful about the timing and method of ingestion because um, this is going to stick around for longer than the average person. So you could get, you know, depending on how well you metabolize things, you could have threefold higher levels floating around, um, which I have to say, uh, if you do are a rapid or ultra-rapid metabolizer, you'll probably have a better chance of passing uh, a blood test if you were ever pulled over for a cannabis-related DUI. You just better hope and pray you're a rapid metabolizer if it's based on thresholds for the amount in your system. Uh, just to give you an example of some real-world <laughs> implications for this information, powerful information is available for you to navigate this, I think, is, is the point I'm making. And so we talked about CBD on uh, clobazam and how that's an interaction where CBD is inhibiting a SIP that prevents the metabolism of this 
class of benzodiazepine. Not not a fun time. Um, and so, uh, you know, we have these SIPs, these enzymes, and there's a whole bunch of them, and they do different things. Um, I mean, they metabolize different drugs. And when we think about, you know, cannabinoids as victims, um, there's uh, different SIPs, and they have fun little names like SIP3A4 or SIP2C9. And, and you're probably wondering, those are so beautiful. I'm so glad scientists named them that way because it's totally easy to understand what they do. It's not like, you know. <laughs> um, so SIP3A4 um, can be inhibited. They can be activated uh, by different drugs. And so clarithromycin, ketoconazole, there's other protease inhibitors that people take. And when you take those drugs, you're, you're inhibiting some SIPs. They, they like to block those proteins for some reason. And if you take a cannabinoid, you could have two to four times the amount of THC or CBD in your bloodstream, in your plasma, uh, relative to just, you know, taking the cannabinoid alone. And that's, again, these could be drugs that have nothing to do with each other, like clarithromycin or, again, ketoconazole. Um, and that's a paper, I think, published in 2013, you know, 10 years ago, they identified this reaction. And so what we see is that you have these drug metabolizing enzymes that can be either inhi- can be largely inhibited by a drug that then affects another drug. So THC needs CYP3A4 to be metabolized and processed by the body. You inhibit that, it stays around longer, um, which could have unintended consequences. But again, it all comes down to how we use the information um, as well. And so I think that there's, again, um, you know, a lot of this information is extrapolated from drug metabolism studies. Like, there's not, there's not a lot of clinical work where people are like, we want to study drug-drug interactions. There's, it's all sort of teased out from studies. And so a lot of this stuff has been put together from almost like detective-like work. Um, and, and again, you know, there are some clinically significant ones. And, you know, CBD, um, you know, with clobazam, warfarin, uh, tacrolimus and methadone have all been um, implicated in having a potential significant drug-drug interaction. But I'll say that there, the, the nuance there is that it also depends a little bit on your genetic makeup and, and a couple of other factors. But again, on paper, these things have a clinically significant uh, interaction potentially. Um, and THC does share some of those similar concerns with uh, you know TV, CBD and THC both represent um, an issue with warfare and potentially as well. I, I um, think that we're seeing now exactly how complex this has become because I think for most of us, we're just kind of thinking in this singular way that the cannabinoids are interacting with pharmaceuticals and generally we think of it as having a, a, a bad effect. However, you know, we're getting a better idea now that we can have cannabis acting on the pharmaceutical and then we can have the pharmaceutical perhaps acting on the cannabis. 
cannabis, and they can also be going in the uh, different directions. They can be inhibit one could be inhibiting the other, or they could also have additive effects. So now that's going in two directions, and then and then and then there's another two directions because the additive or inhibited effects could actually end up being desirous, or they could be something that we don't want. And so suddenly now we see this like multi-dimensional um uh you know interplay between these drug drug interactions and like our definitions kind of start to float away because because some of the interactions for one patient are going to be negative and but for a different patient they're going to be desirous and i think that you've done a really good job at illustrating how how we we need to look at you know individual patients and not make big grandiose rules that we're going to try to apply to everybody all drugs or all types of patients and uh and i like this encouragement for us to you know dig into our genetics as well, you know, especially if we're trying to tease out some kind of drug drug interaction problem we think we have, um, uh, and, and we want to get, uh, specific, um, with that. I also like this idea of this perpetrator and victim idea where, where, you know, you've got, you've got one compound that is receiving the action and the other one that is, is placing the action, um, Let's talk a little bit about the cannabinoids that are already in our body, right? So, like, up till now, we've been talking about adding phytocannabinoids, so cannabinoids from plants, um, to the mix. But we know that we already have endogenous cannabinoids in our body. They already exist. And and usually when we are taking additional phytocannabinoids from the cannabis plant to supplement the endocannabinoids that our body creates, um, you know, that's, that's our goal. I'm curious... Um, do we see any uh, or, or significant interactions between these endocannabinoids that somebody who doesn't even use cannabis will have in them and these pharmaceuticals? Sure. Um, you know, we certainly can talk about some of the things that will make you realize you have an endocannabinoid system. So, when we talk about the endocannabinoid system, it's, it's again, it's not just anandamide and 2-AG and PEA and OEA and all the amino acid conjugated endocannabinoids. And, you know, the, we, we could definitely delve into the molecular psychiatry of all those compounds. But we have to remember that a lot of these endocannabinoids are made on demand and they are metabolized quickly. And reason that's important is because, you know, we, ha- we, we want to focus on anandamide and 2-AG, but we also have to focus on them being made. We, we can't just look at the bullet. We have to look at the gun that's firing the bullet. And in this sense, um, the analogy isn't perfect, but when we think about FA, which is the, as in, you know, I like to think far out research, FA out research, but uh, FA mm-hmm. is an enzyme that you know, chews up the endocannabinoid. So uh, it's, it's the, you know, the endocannabinoid dump truck. It, they are made quickly by our body on demand. Again, most signaling molecules are made and stored and released. Uh, endocannabinoids are made on demand. And so one interaction with the endocannabinoid system that I think most people have experienced, um, I will describe in a moment. There's actually an over-the-counter medication that 
anyone can buy that will interact with your endocannabinoid system. And I'm, I'm going to let you think about it for a minute, listener and Shango, but I just want to tell you about this case report real quick. And so imagine you uh, had a history of painless injuries in your life. You accidentally cut your finger and everyone's like, oh my gosh, did that hurt? And you're like, eh, it's all right. Stub your toe, don't feel it. Morphine, opioids, don't really relieve your pain. You get some minor surgery uh, from experiencing life and, you know, you're like, I don't need pain medication. And, and you know, you, you people around you and even you is like, wow, I have this high threshold for pain. So how could the endocannabinoid system explain well, I'm not really getting an effect from opioids. I actually don't even need them. Um, and that's um, and this is from a story that was laid out in a case report about a, a micro deletion in the DNA. And it was in a FA gene, the gene that tells our bodies how to make this enzyme that breaks down the endocannabinoids. And that without the dump truck, the trash just piles up. And so you get a lot of anandamide and, um, you know, decreases in pain sensitivity. And so this actually really happened. The mutant walks among us. It was a 66-year-old female, had a history of not requiring any pain medication, a history of painless injuries. Wow. And, and why, why, do I, why does this relate to an over-the-counter endocannabinoid drug? Well, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but... Paracetamol, or as some of us call it, Tylenol, right, uh, requires FA to exert its pain relieving properties. Um, and so, a uh, basically, Alex Macrianus, who's at Northeastern University, was an advisor on my thesis, and um, was also, you know, many of my colleagues like Dr. Josh Hartzell and others um, worked with him as well. And he discovered. Um, a, a drug, and it turns out that it's um, it's related to this. But basically, um, it without when, when you take Tylenol, it is metabolized into a FA inhibitor, which temporarily increases the amount of endocannabinoids in your system. And so, if you uh, created uh, what they did an experimental model, a permanent FA inhibitor drug, which irreversibly binds FA. You know, paracetamol or Tylenol had no effect. So, no endocannabinoid system, no Tylenol. Um, and this is, again, this is a fun example, an extreme example for us to play with these concepts. Like, wow, um, I'm taking Tylenol. How does it work? One of the ways it works is by inhibiting this enzyme that allows my endocannabinoids to flourish, be produced in higher than normal concentrations. It does other things as well. And, um, and so I think like there's one example of endocannabinoid interaction. And, and so the next time you go to a grocery store, you know, look, there's, there's an endocannabinoid medicine right mm. there on the shelf. Um, but obviously, you know, endocannabinoids are slightly different in their activity than THC and CBD. They share a lot of interactions. Um, and I think there are other things we can think about, you know, cannabinoids, obviously interact with the endocannabinoid system. And I think one of the ways that we can think about it um, is that, um, you know, cannabinoids can, you know, inhibit or enhance certain activities of each other. And so, you know, if we have, 
you know, uh, CBD in there and it's modulating cannabinoid receptors to make them more difficult to be activated. It's actually an, um, a negative allosteric modulator of CB1. You know, what does that do to your natural anandamide signaling, right? So CBD can definitely influence that. Um, and I think we can think about other aspects um, there as well. It's, you know, I, I wish I had like a virtual whiteboard to start drawing out circles and charts. But let me try to sum it up real quick. So, you know, CBD is a great one to talk about because it does a lot of, a lot of things. It's a very promiscuous uh, molecule, but it, it increases anandamide levels because CBD does have a little bit of FA inhibitor activity. So it increases anandamide levels that stimulates a bunch of other channels um, and, and receptors like trip V1. Um, if you're of amyloid receptors, trip V1, something you, you, you stimulate every day. If you eat spicy food, um, it's, it's a capsaicin from chili peppers stimulates it. And so, you know, you could take, uh, you know, CBD increases anandamide levels, or you're an, or if you just have naturally high anandamide levels, this will counteract or antagonize uh, the effect of potentially of um, of CB1 receptors on, on glutamatergic neurons. And so you can, um, you know, one thing that THC does is it slows brain activity a little bit. And what I mean by brain activity, it doesn't like make your brain dead, but it's one of the reasons it has a benefit, right? Is that people talk about cytotoxicity, excessively active neurons. If you have a seizure or a traumatic injury, your neurons might be firing like crazy and firing until they kill themselves. Just like release, 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 stimulate, 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 you know, red alert, red alert. Um, and uh, you can decrease that signaling. That's why one of the reasons it makes it hard to remember stuff. Um, but it also makes it, you know, makes it harder to receive a pain signal. So, so what happens is, uh, just simply put, THC hits a receptor, decreases in glutamate release. Um, however, uh, you can also enhance glutamate release by stimulating trip receptors. And so you could have this sort of give and take these forces going in different directions um, to impact it. So I know that was a, a little bit of a heady response, um, you know, but I mean, there's lots of examples um, like this, like... Um, that's probably the one we need for now, though, um, <laughs> uh, uh, because you're right, it is, it is incredibly complex, and we're certainly not going to be able to explain them all but, um, in, in one episode. But you made the point very clearly that we need to not go into this with assumptions that, A, we know what's going to happen based on science that might be outmoded, and that individuals and the, you know, really show the importance of individualized medicine and that cannabis can do that and then also in a way we're kind of like already swimming in all of these drug compounds that that you know we're taking from over the or over the counter drugs plus any pharmaceuticals that were being offered plus you know you add to it maybe some cannabinoids and and you know maybe somebody is also microdosing mushrooms and and suddenly now there's this like the this soup of of different drug drug interactions going on and and there's no surprise that that there would be some some sometimes unexpected effects. And before you jump on that, because I can almost feel you going for it, <laughs> we need to take our first short break. We'll be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is molecular pharmacologist Jayan Marku, PhD. 
You've heard me talk about the award-winning cannabis seeds that come from the analytical breeding program of Seth and Eric Crawford, who founded Oregon CBD Seeds. In fact, Seth was a guest on Shaping Fire in 2020 to talk about triploid genetics. Seth and Eric are now releasing high-THC seeds for home growers and farms as Grow the Revolution Seeds at gtrseeds.com. Their high-THC seeds are extraordinary in that they will start to flower at 16.5 hours of daylight instead of the typical 14.5 hours of daylight. That means in most regions, your plants will start to flower outdoors in the middle of July instead of the middle of August, which means these photoperiod plants finish in September and not October, totally upending the photoperiod seed market. Seth and Eric took their prized early flowering CBG line and bred it to some of the most desired verified genetics out there, including Sour Diesel, Triangle Kush, Wedding Cake, Chem Dogs, Skittles, and others. These crosses all express powerful photoperiod terpene profiles and THC, giving you a great high. GTR Seeds has a new THCV line with plants like Double Durban and Gigantor that boast one-to-one THC to THCV, and people want that THCV. GTR Seeds are very consistent, true-growing, inbred F1s from stabilized inbred parent lines. These seeds are nearly homogenous, and the plants should all grow the same. There is only one phenotype in every pack available as diploids and triploids. Seth and Eric's company is still family-owned, patient and employee-centric, and partially powered by their two acres of solar panels. Everyone can purchase these seeds and the entire catalog of Oregon CBD seeds at gtrseeds.com. Go to gtrseeds.com today and choose something revolutionary for your next indoor or outdoor run. The cannabis seed market is filled with big name and hype breeders fighting to get your attention. And occasionally you discover a breeder who is breeding because it is the only thing they care to do and they would be doing it even if they never made a dime. That's my friend Craig Hartsaw, who makes seeds as magnetic genetics. Craig comes from five generations of farmers and is earning his master's degree in horticulture right now. He's been growing cannabis for 15 years and been breeding for nine. He hasn't sold many seeds because he really isn't a sales guy, but I've personally been growing his seeds for years, and I know I can always rely on his seeds to germinate, thrive, and smell and taste great. I suggested to Craig that he should probably sell some seeds and asked if he had enough stockpiled to bother. Much to my shock, he was sitting on five full menus in cold storage that he produced in the last two years and hadn't even tried to sell any of them. He was simply too busy breeding. Well, we, his friends, convinced him to make his damn seeds available to the people, and now they are. For the first time anywhere, you can now buy magnetic genetic seeds at Neptune Seed Bank and on Strainly.io. Neptune Seed Bank has just picked up magnetic genetics for a trial to gauge your interest. They are carrying three strains from his Mean Mug, Prominence, and Turpinado menus, which are exclusive to Neptune. It's an easy way to score his seeds. You can pick up those menus plus his hillbilly skunk and candy breath crosses and more on his profile page on Strainly.io. If you want very affordable seeds that are exceptional quality with rare terpene profiles from a good guy, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com or Strainly.io. Sometimes it is fun to buy the hype thing from the brand you admire, but when you're ready to buy the strain you'll love from an obscure mad scientist... 
you're ready for magnetic genetics. Magneticgenetics.org and on Instagram. Magnetic Genetics. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is molecular pharmacologist, Jehan Marku, PhD. So, you know, Jehan, during the first set, you know, you were very clear that um, we are seeing more of these pharmaceutical and cannabis uh, cannabinoid interactions, um, you know, for two big reasons. One being there's more people using cannabis, and, and then two, there's more people researching it and, and collecting the data on this stuff, which is really great. Um, I would have to think that like not only is there just like more people though using cannabis, um cannabis itself is expanded. We're suddenly accessing all these like new new cannabinoids that we are experiencing in in higher amounts than they would have in land races. And we're also got like new ways to use cannabis, like dabbing, where you're suddenly getting all these terpenes and cannabinoids at one time and you know, it's not uncommon for, for people to like keel over after like a fat dab. And, um, you know, there's just, there's just like so much, there's so much more than we as humans ever interacted with when we were, you know, you know, walking the plains and, and, and mountains and, and pulling cannabis plants out and, and getting, you know, the kind of land races they had, you know, 10,000 years ago or whatever. Um, will you speak to that, like to what effect these new methods, uh, and new ranges of cannabinoids are having on, um, the interaction with pharmaceuticals? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, you know, our ancestors, you know, used to just eat cannabis and, you know, clear some land and there'd be more cannabis growing and fresh cut land. You know, they, they didn't have, um, you know, access to 
chemicals like butane and shoved it in a tube and extracted. I mean, they would do manual extractions. And, and so I think it's always important to remember that concentrating cannabis has been around for a long time. Um, you know, hashish, uh, you know, Arab merchants uh, used to trade it up and down the coast of Africa. Some of the earliest reports about cannabis use are these black hashish bars um, with guys riding basically naked and horseback into villages to trade um, these products. Um, but the composition of the matter has changed greatly. And I, you know, there, you know, this always reminds me of uh, a mantra, a phrase, or a principle from my colleague, Teresa Simon, who's an epidemiologist, and we've done a lot of database mining, FDA database, adverse events databases, um, collection tools, um, like the budsinfo.com thing, where we collect experiential data and adverse events from campus products. It's part of a student project. But she says this thing, seems like every week at every meeting, she says, um, uh, efficacy gets it on the market, safety keeps it on the market. And I think if we've all been in the cannabis industry more than two years, three years, we can all probably think of one or two products that hit the market because they were effective. Where are they now? And we have to really pause and think about that. Um, we have to think about a little bit about our commitments here when we put these products out there. And, you know, I'm trying to get back to your question as I've meandered off the path a little bit, but it just made me think about, you know, a lot of these products are concentrating things beyond what um, our ancestors would have, you know, encountered in the wild. Um, you know, uh, CBL and all these other cannabinoids, I mean, they've never been consumed in large amounts. It's unprecedented in our you know, in our in our time frame. I mean, people even 20 years ago weren't really consuming huge amounts of purified cannabinoids. Even the the distribution of cannabinoids and products in concentrated products from Morocco over the centuries is not nearly compare to the purity and refinement of these dabs, waxes, shatters, wh whatever you want to call it, uh, <laughs> the stuff that looks like earwax that, uh, <laughs> and things like that. And you know we're this the, there's no there's no question those are very efficient products to deliver cannabinoids into your body. What is unclear is what is the trade off? What are the what's the risk benefits to using that? And do you need to use as much as you're using, or could you use less? Um, and I think that those are questions we have. Um, you know, we think about. Um, you know, there's this old question, uh, the dose, you know, makes the poison, you know, nothing is poisonous, everything is poisonous, it's all a matter of dose. And, you know, we think about terpenes, you know, at ambient air levels, terpenes have, are wonderful. Um, you walk into a grocery store, and if they've got that produce section, it smells great to be there. Cool breeze, light smell of chlorophyll, and maybe they have some flowers going. But if you concentrate some of those products, um, you know, you'll find them in, as cleaning agents. Uh, limonene is a good one. It's delicious and refreshing and uplifting in lemonade and even on a cannabis product has been reported. 
But if you concentrate it, it makes a great cleaning agent. It can strip a sticker off a metal wall. Um, not necessarily something you want to inhale into your lungs is a pure concentrated terpenes. And, and it, it also depends, again, like there are terpenes that you shouldn't even use in a diffuser if you have a small pet like a cat. Um, and so, again, I think we always have to think about um, that some of these compounds do carry risks. Uh, it's not like they're safe at any level, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, without risk at any level. And and what I'm really talking about here is, you know, uh, there are moments where we should pause and think. There are there are red lights, there are yellow lights, there's proceed with normal precautions, there's proceed with extra precautions, and there's consider alternatives. And I think, you know, we're really lucky that, THC, CBD, low toxicity, great therapeutic index. I mean, they're both FDA approved in one form. Um, you know, we're, the, the THC appears in three scheduling categories. Um, if it's below a certain amount, um, you know, it's been legalized in the form of hemp. I mean, hemp chocolates can have more THC in them than a THC product you buy at a dispensary. I mean, it's so clearly they've you know, through regulation and stuff like that, and even this public health experiment we have going on, we found that, hey, you know, there are certain, you know, levels that are lower risk than others. And and a THC, CBD, again, just because they're relatively safe, doesn't mean that every single thing on the plant is relatively safe. Um, you know, so I think we have to be it's good to be optimistic but also to have skepticism skepticism is our friend like you know okay thc cbd we know about them we know about their acidic components a little bit but what do we know about the you know other 100 or so compounds that can be found on it in small amounts you know i think of uh you know things in nature the most potent things in nature are often there in the smallest amounts um, you know, if you look at marine biology, like nematodes and, and other stuff like that for documentaries, they have, you know, really potent compounds for defense in them. And they're usually, you know, small amounts. Um, and, you know, we think about things like I think it's THCP and these other things that are like, ooh, a hundred times more potent. And it's like, what does that really mean? You know, what does that mean? Does it mean it's just going to be more pleasurable or does it mean you're going to be catatonic for three or four days if you consume a large amount of it. And then, and these stories um, are not often popularized for, for a number of reasons, but there are stories, you know, back in the, you know, back in the decades ago, uh, it was very common for pharmacologists uh, who developed drugs. This is something they phased out when I was a graduate student, so no fun for me. But the most, one of the most common things was the pharmacologist to take it to see if it actually worked. Um, it usually ended with a student being doubled over a sink vomiting, but, um, you know, that was what people would do. And I think we have to, there are lots of stories. If you go to conferences and you ask around, oh, has anyone ever taken this compound that's a hundred to a thousand times more potent than THC? Someone may tell you a story. Yeah, that guy was catatonic for five days and on his floor of his kitchen, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But but again, that's not to say there are, I'm not, and I'm not saying that any compounds like that exist on the market that we know of. But again, I'm just wanting to get the idea that, you know, small changes to a molecule, small differences can have dramatic effects. You know, ethanol 
We like to drink it. Methanol can make us go blind. Uh, there, there's a very subtle difference in their chemical structure. Right on. I want to tie a couple of things that you said together for the caregivers who are listening, because, you know, as, as you know, everybody who listens to the show knows that like, I'm, I'm very patient centric. And while I myself am not a, a healthcare professional, um, because of the role I play in the community, I talk to a lot of patients and have, have heard, you know, anecdotal stories and uh, like, you know, over a thousand patients. And so if you're a caregiver, based on what uh, Jehan just said, these are the couple of the takeaways that, that I would offer, which would be, um, number one, um, just because you've had a, can- a, just because you're working with a patient or you are a patient who has always used cannabis and, and has used a particular pharmaceutical for a long time, don't take out a possibility that the cannabis and the pharmaceutical could be interacting in a new way now because the cannabis that is available to you as a patient has now changed. Maybe you're no longer just, you know, you know, smoking your home grow and, and, and rolling up joints and, and using that for your pain. Maybe now you are dabbing and maybe you are taking edibles with, you know, 200 milligrams of THC, or maybe you are, um, you're dabbing and you are supplementing with straight terpenes, which I see people do, which is like, is so dangerous um, because there's there's no scientific history uh, of us of us dabbing straight terpenes like that, and so so you know I'm not saying don't dab I'm not saying um, you know don't amend with terpenes in your edibles other things what I'm saying is is you as a patient or as a caregiver um, uh, it is it is a helpful perspective to realize that as cannabis changes and in, as it's not the same cannabis that we had 30 years ago that the patient's relationship with cannabinoids and the pharmaceuticals might change as well um so moving on from from that to, to the next area, uh, Jehan, you know, I wanted to talk just briefly about isolate versus whole plant um, uh, medicines because you know uh, I, I've warmed up to isolates a little bit. Uh, I, I, I've I've never really had all that much good to say about isolates. I'm a big fan of of whole plant um, cannabis preparations, um, but I've had to be more open to isolate as as the breeding for uh, specific. Uh, you know, blends of cannabinoids and plants is, you know, going slower than we want it to go to be able to relieve the suffering of, of so many patients. And so, you know, before, before CBD was available everywhere, um, you know, we eventually figured out that, okay, if, if you've got a THC type one plant, but you don't have access to CBD, all right, spiking it with some CBD isolate in the presence of the rest of the cannabinoids in the, in the whole plant resin, that's probably a good thing. And, and, you you know, you know, uh, Dr. Agarwal and and Dr. Russo have all been on the show and, and have said, you know, that's that sounds like a really good idea. Um, and so more of us are using isolate um, here and there to to spike our different preparations. On the other side, you've got pharmaceutical companies that are using, you know, isolate and hand chosen terpenes to make. Um, you know, uh, you know the early endocannabinoid drugs like uh, like Epidiolex, right? Which you know, f- you know, when I read the when I read the descriptions, you know, it it 
it smacks of like kind of Frankenstein's monster to me a bit. Uh, I would much rather have a plant that is a two to one CBD to THC with a proper terpene profile and, and have it in the resin from the plant and then just use the plant, right? Because there's, there's thousands of years of good relationship between us and the plant that I think is less effective when we when we tear it all down and and put it into a pharmaceutical but you know um we have we're going in this direction and it's certainly helping people and that's good so i've, I've had to soften my opinionated <laughs> on this you know so so this is all circling around to this question is that when we're talking about interactions with other pharmaceuticals are there any things that we should um as cannabis patients or as caregivers be aware of how isolates might interact with pharmaceuticals differently than how whole plant preparations like rosins and stuff might interact with pharmaceuticals? You know, that it's a question that um, you, the answer is yes and no, you know, to give a truly academic response. So, you know, spiking, adulterating, or, or, you know, can be one in the same term, um, so I might use them interchangeably as I just kind of speak off the cuff, but, mm-hmm. you know, mixing, let's start with ancient times, right? Uh, so, so ch- changing the composition of something you're consuming for the purposes of uh, psychoactive effect is, it's not a new practice. Um, I would, uh, I, I, I would give you very poor odds against the idea that our ancestors mixed lots of plant products together and smoked them. Uh, I'm willing to bet that things like lavender or chamomile and um, calamus root, I think even some of these have been documented, were smoked and probably mixed with cannabis. Not all too different in concept from spiking with terpenes, adding a foreign compound to the mix. Um, indeed, like Sativex, that's like what you're describing sounds like how Sativex is made. Uh, the, the, the oral mucosal, the tincture that's sprayed under the tongue that's licensed in over 30 countries, but not in the United States. Um, that is two cannabis varieties extracted by CO2 extraction, turned in an oil and mixed together to get this nice ratio of a one to one THC to CBD. So it's a proven strategy or tactic um, in preparing medicine and making consumer products. Um, Anytime you are increasing the dose or your exposure, you're introducing new complications. Um, Cannabinoids are waxy and sticky compounds. Um, And, you know, if you're really consuming a lot of this stuff, um, it can stick to everything. It can stick to your teeth. It can start to stick to your lungs. There's been some people who um, have way, and I'm talking extreme, like a lasagna tray of (laughs) a dab sort of thing, just to be, you know, um, a little silly there, but they're, they're, they're consuming a lot. It can coat airways. It can collect on material and things like that. And that that, that, that may be a bad time for, for some folks. Um, so again, but that's not going to happen with moderate or, or low use of these products. I mean, um, typically you can't, you know, um, what's sold in a lot of adult use stores, um, regulated adult use dispensaries is, is really not enough um, to induce some of these things. But again, you know, chronic consumption of concentrated products can introduce you know, new things. And I guess 
Um, let's let's use an analogy. Um, let's talk like beer, right? Versus um, you know vodka, right? Beer, few percent alcohol, maybe eight percent. That's a pretty potent beer, right? You know, vodka, they don't even use percents. They use proofs. Uh, you know, it could be quite uh, it could be quite a lot more potent by an order of magnitude. Even wine. Wine can be, you know, upwards of twenty percent alcohol. That's you know, twice as much that's uh than a beer. You know, if you're talking forty to sixty percent by weight alcohol, I mean you could be adding a zero onto the percentage of a beer. A beer is five percent. And you have a alcoholic beverage that's above fifty percent alcohol. That's an order of magnitude more ethanol. So if you're drinking a beer, you know you have all these other things in there. Uh, you know you got some some flavor compounds. You know a nice big double hopped IPA. You know they just they smell amazing. If you're into plants, um, you can you can smell the terpenes from the hops plant. You can there are other compounds in there that give it flavor and body and color. It's it's a bit dilute though the alcohol in that mixture you're you're drinking like liquid bread in a sense you know if you look at like a Guinness for example um, or some of those more heavier beers unfiltered beers there's other components now what is the difference between a beer and vodka well I just you know we can describe it in terms of smell and taste but you can also describe it in terms of calories and, and what else is in there and is it better to drink the the ethanol in a liquid bread preparation or is it better to drink it in a pure form and i wanted to use something that perhaps people who don't use dabs or extracts or are considering it to give them you know an analogy to think about when it comes to these products uh i think the idea of adding a compound to mitigate the side effects like putting cbd in a product to decrease the potential adverse effects of someone who's sensitive to THC. I think that's a wonderful idea. Um, and, and I'd love to see, I think, more more of that available to people. It's this form of compound pharmacy, I think. <laughs> um, and so I think, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, these extracts have a utility, I think, especially in people with severe conditions, cancer, chemotherapy, um, extremely difficult to treat neurodegenerative disorders. You know, when we look at CBD, even, um, you know, the average person, you know, buys a boutique CBD product, might have five milligrams in it, maybe 20. And they're like, I feel so relaxed. Uh, But uh, if you look at what's being used in the clinic, we're talking hundreds of milligrams of CBD for an effect. So um, we can't really say, oh, it's bad. And this is good. It's, it's all a bit of a spectrum in terms of the context of use and, and why you're using it. Um, but again, the more you take of something, the more you have in your body. Again, I use the analogy of the guy walking around town with nothing to do might just get into trouble if they walk down the wrong alley. So um, I think about that a little bit too. Um, you know, if you're hanging out playing in the street because you got nothing to do, it's all fine till the wrong car comes along. You know, <laughs> so um, there are things like that I, I think about too. So if you're using a lot of cannabinoids. 
and suddenly you get a new prescription medication, um, you know, that might present some, some complications. That's why, you know, that the, they have that advice, you know, go low, start low and go slow, take it at night when you're using new products. It's to sort of give you like, I'm going to use it in a safe place. I'm going to use a small amount and I'm going to write down what happened and how I felt just so I can start to track things. Because no one's really, you know, Shango, uh, I don't think either one of us are saying, um, you know, we're not telling people not to use it. We think we're just giving them pause to think about it, you know. And exactly, exactly. Know, know what you're doing. And just because other people are doing it doesn't mean that it's necessarily right for you, you know, uh, uh, make, make informed choices. Absolutely. And I, and I think about, you know, I, uh, I don't golf that often. Um, and when I do, it's, it's pretty terrible, but, um, you know, I think the same thing for the cannabis is the uh, same thing. Uh, the things I like in golf are putting the slow putts, the short distance things, you know, hitting, whacking the ball as hard as you can with as much force as you can to go as far as you can, you know, taking heroic doses of things, you know, it's, uh, I see you might spend a lot of time wondering just where that ball is <laughs> <laughs> versus, you know, putting, you got a green, there's a lot, there's still a lot of fun there and a, and a challenge there as well. Um, but again, it's, it's different strokes for different folks. But again, I, I would really just give people pause about that because you want to take a holistic approach with this. And, and, you know, you, when it comes to patients, you know, especially avoiding drug-drug interactions, there might be a real strategy here. Maybe you prefer edibles, but the edibles stick around so long because they're, they're swallowed, they go through the GI tract, then they go to the liver, just like a pill. However, inhalation avoids that first round. It eventually does get metabolized, but it avoids that first round pass of metabolism. So if you're consuming, uh, let's call it healthy, normal cannabis, not, not special cannabis, not um, you know, cannabis dipped in hash oil, not dabs, not cannabis with spiked with other cannabinoids, but just good old-fashioned uh, plant material, you know, and you're inhaling that, you know, you might be able to decrease your chances as a strategy. Just conceptually, you know, the amount of administration matters. Swallowing things makes everything complicated. Um, there's a reason why Sativex, and if you haven't looked into Nabixamols or tinctures, I think this is an area worthy of further development. Um, taking a product that can be applied under the tongue or in the cheek and absorb buccally. Don't swallow it. Don't, don't, don't even visualize yourself swallowing it. Um, I don't want any placebo effects on this podcast, but you, you, uh, you absorb it buccally. It goes into your mouth and it goes right into your brain. Like why send the, the cannabinoids on a wild goose chase through your digestive tract and through the body? All oh, they got to go all travel through the whole body before they get to the brain. It's little little crazy trip they have to take. So why not just load the magic school bus and send it right right to the brain and avoiding um, some complications potentially. So you have option you know the point of this is is your only option isn't inhalation. Your only option isn't oral. Um, there are potentially other strategies that you could use. And I think these are great conversations to have with the your PCP or your primary care physician. <laughs> not talking about another drug there. Um, but uh, the, or, or any medical health professional, um, doctors are trained to talk about drug-drug interactions. They can look up any of this information quickly, or you can 
you know, reach out to me or, or check out, you know, rewind the show and pull some of the, the, the references we talk about um, and bring those to your clinician. I used to advise medical cannabis patients. So I did a lot of advocacy. I'd give them, you know, papers. I'm sure there's like a couple clinicians at like Kaiser or some medical place in California are being like, who the hell was giving my patients all those peer reviewed studies and having them bring them to my office. <laughs> you know, so I was sometimes arming uh, medical cannabis patients with peer reviewed studies to share with their clinician to have these types of discussion. How should I consume it? What are the benefits and risks of consuming these products uh, topically, orally, submucosally, um, by inhalation. Um, and these are all, and, and in what amounts and, and things like that. So these are all great conversations to continue to have. And as you said, it's going to continue to change because products change, varieties of cannabis change. Um, and I think it's always good to just check in about that. Right on. So um, when we come back from our commercial break in set three, we're going to talk about some uh, uh, red flag drugs and uh, categories of drugs um, that we want to be especially aware of um, if you are a cannabis patient or you are doing, um, uh, you know, caregiving for somebody else. And uh, we'll go through those um, with uh, Jehan. So uh, we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. And my guest today is Molecular pharmacologist Jehan Marku, PhD. Online cannabis seed distributors often seem to be all the same, but Multiverse Beans constantly works to provide you with cannabis seeds and a buying experience that you won't find elsewhere. Multiverse Beans works directly with the breeders to secure as many packs of your favorites as possible so that they have your favorite beans long after others have sold out. Some shops simply buy breeder minimums, but I get messages all the time from breeders saying some version of Multiverse asked to buy my entire run. At MultiverseBeans.com, you can find rare cannabis seeds from Night Owl Seeds, including the Dark Owl sublabel, Mephisto Genetics, Square One Genetics, Robin Hood Seeds, and Ethos, and so many others. Multiverse also initiates projects with breeders to secure exclusive packs that you simply won't find elsewhere. Multiverse founder Paul Lal sees himself not only as a curator of the best cannabis seeds available, but also as a collaborator with breeders, trying to bring novel crosses to the market that his customers are asking for. Multiverse Beans also creates exclusive stickers for their popular seed varieties that are available free only when you order those seeds from Multiverse. Check out their stickers like the badass recent slap for Mothman by Gnome Automatics on Instagram at Multiverse Beans. And finally, the freebies. As you'd expect, Paul sends quality freebies with every order. And when you spend at least $150, Multiverse allows you to choose your freebies from their special selections. You can get a 10% discount off regularly priced items when you use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout. Sign up for their mailing list to be eligible for their monthly seed giveaway worth $250. So go to multiversebeans.com now for a buying experience you won't get anywhere else. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. 
Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Gas Lamp Seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gas Lamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gas Lamp Seeds. Gas Lamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gas Lamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 60 breeders and over a 1,000 strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gas Lamp Seeds has something for everyone, with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos. And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of gas lamp provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit gaslampseeds.com today. That's gaslamp seeds. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shengalos, and my guest today is molecular pharmacologist, Jehan Marku, PhD. So, Jehan, you know, we, we've talked a lot about, um, like, the, the mindset and the perspectives and the complexity, and we've teased these things apart mostly just so people can see, like, all these different avenues that we could say are avenues of, of, of concern, but they're really avenues of solutions, right? Because usually by the time um, a cannabis patient is 
either A, us and sick, or B, we are a caregiver and we've been called in to help out. Um, usually there is um, a problem to be, you know, resolved and, and healing to be applied. And, and so, what I want to ask you is that uh, there have got to be some some categories of pharmaceuticals that are just red flag because they are you know like up up at the top of the list of drugs that are likely to interact with cannabis and and while while our goal today has been to like hopefully arm cannabis patients and caregivers with lots of different ways to you know dive into what they're trying to suss suss out um there's probably a, a few that we should just put a big red flag on and so so uh, wh- why don't we go through two or three of these so so what's at the top of your list of red flag drugs um, that are going to interact in cannabis in uh, potentially sketchy ways. So um, things to be concerned about. First, I'm going to start with alphabet soup real quick, and then we'll go into more specifics. But if you're taking um, potential drug-drug interactions have to do with drugs, they're looking at CYP, CYP2C9. Healthcare professionals will know exactly what you're talking about. So if you are listening, pulling out a little piece of paper and writing these down and then throwing them into a search browser will reveal all. But SIP2C9, uh, SIP1A2, SIP2B6, and SIP2C19, um, and even some of the acidic cannabinoids um, like THC, THCVA, uh, CBD, CBDVA, um, CBGA, these all interact, for example, with CYP2C9. So if you have taking a medication, which is probably, you know, it's very, these are very common targets of medications, um, you could have a victim-perpetrator effect going on. So a couple of red flag potentials, you know. Um, you know, I, I used to think, like, I want, um, you know, I already, uh, you know, have my own podcast as well, and I thought about starting another one just called What the Hell Happened, where people would call in with... Um, drug experiences and be like i was doing fine i was having fun at this party and i just got lightheaded and passed out and like what the hell happened and you know these stories um you know a joke a little bit there to cut the tension because this is about hypertension and hypotension and and the hypotensive effects of cannabis most people probably don't even notice or it's transient you've been sitting down for a while playing a board game or whatever, you know, FIFA on your Xbox, and you, you step up, oh, I feel a little lightheaded, and then you like, oh, oh, I'm better now. But some people, that is, is really severe. And so if you're taking cardiovascular medication, I think, and you have a cardiovascular condition, it's a great idea to really pause and think about things and maybe have a discussion because um, cannabis does cause hypotension. The blood vessels, uh, you know, will, will dilate, um, and, and, and the heart, heart will work a little harder to pump blood around because, you know, things are a little more relaxed. Um, but that hypotension could result in being so lightheaded that, that you have to sit down or, you know, you really full, feel the pull of the gravity of the earth and just bam. And that, that, could be, that could be bad, especially if you hit something on the way down. So I'd say red flag interaction, cardiovascular medications that treat hypertension, um, you know, I, I would say look look into that if you're on um, anything having to do with cardiovascular medications. All right, what's um, an, what's another area? 
Yeah, um, I'd say um, uh, warfarin, um, and I, I pronounce drugs a little weirdly because I had uh, my mentor was from Lebanon. Um, one of our collaborators that I listened to a lot uh, was born in Scotland and spent. 30 years in Australia. So I'm used to hearing drugs <laughs> pronounced <laughs> in really weird ways. And so I don't know the correct way to say apoptosis or apoptosis or apoptosis, you know, there's all these ways. So uh, bear with me here. Um, but uh, warfarin is one. And this is uh, it's most like people blood probably clotting find, drug, right? Right. Blood thinning. So yeah. So you, you, if you take if that, you could potentially. You know, this is where cannabinoids are perpetrators. Warfarin will stick around longer, um, increased risk of excessive bleeding there. Um, so that would be a potential red flag. Something to think about, consider. Again, that's where this mantra we hear, start low and go slow, comes in. Uh, we mentioned clobazam, and this really is, again, a risk of um, benzodiazepine toxicity. So, uh, and, and most notably with CBD. Um, so again, thinking about benzodiazepines and cannabinoids, uh, you may want to proceed slowly there. Um, central nervous depressants could have additive effects. We already talked about that. Um, um, the, the, a lot of the peens, the clozapine and olanzapine, um, will have reduced efficacy. And I think that that, um, you know, and again, I'll just tie it in the SIP 3A4 and SIP 2C9, um, you know, you should, Think about um, those and drug-drug interactions. If you have drugs that are metabolized or interact with those, I, I would say discuss alternatives um, that might be appropriate in, in that instance, just based on the literature and, and what's available. It may not be clinically feasible, so you might have to consider you know different routes of administration or something. You know. So you mentioned the uh, cl- the clobazan, which is a, a benzodiazepam. So so while that one most of us don't come across in our regular life, but I believe another benzodiazepam is Valium, which is like all through, you know, our scene and, you know, you know, your aunt gives one to you or whatever, you know, these are very common to come across. Would we, should we be careful similarly mixing Valium with cannabinoids? Um, Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, probably true for any anti-anxiety medication. So Xanax, Librium. Uh, even antidepressants, Zoloft, Prolax, uh, Prozac, Lexapro, um, just like naming things off the top of my head. You know, these things even like carry over to the psychedelic space too. You know, people, you're not supposed to, you know, go on a psilocybin therapeutic session while on these things either. And so, um, you know, mostly what we're concerned about with a cannabis or hemp product is that these increased side effects, dizziness, drowsiness, confusion, um, and, and other difficulties when you're using a diazepam together with something like cannabis. Now, again, everyone's going to be different. Um, some people will probably listen to this and be like, I do that all the time, and it's fine. And other people are going to be like, I'm never doing that again. And, and what we're really talking about here, I think, is you know, cannabis can be a beneficial thing in people's life. And we don't want it to be... A, a bad thing. We want it to be a good thing in, in people's life, or at least have no net effect. <laughs> no net effect and a good thing. That'd be that'd be great. And so, we're really trying to figure out how do we prevent people from, you know, having to utter the phrase "I'm never doing that again" or "That was terrible." Um, you know, I think of how hard the cannabis industry has worked to get where it is, and you, know, you don't want 
a, a first-time patient who could benefit from cannabis to get the wrong product, have a drug-drug interaction or a side effect and say, you know what, I'm, I'm never touching that stuff again. And it might have just been a, a simple issue as timing, route of administration, or again, dosing. I want to focus on one thing that you said. It makes a lot of sense that if you would take a uh, a benzodiazepam-like Valium or Xanax and add um, THC uh, blend to it, that you are going, you know, you're, you are more likely to, you know, have have decreased de- dexterity and increased drowsiness, and you know, won't be able to drive your car as well. And these things that like slow your human down, right? That all makes sense. But you caught me off. <laughs> guard when you when you mentioned those SSRIs because so many people who are taking you know uh, you know some of these these um you know, long-term anxiety and depression medications like Wellbutrin and, and, you know, that whole basket that you mentioned, many of them also supplement with cannabis either for quality of life or just, you know, because they still have residual anxiety, even on those drugs. Um, what is the mechanism of cannabis interacting with this, this basket of drugs? And is there anything that patients who are blending those themselves at home should watch out for great um great question there um (laughs) let me think about that for a second (laughs) um mechanisms of action i mean the the antidepressants are is a very broad feel um so we could think about maybe um like fluxetine or, or prozac um And, and, you know, some of these have, like, that one I like to talk about because, again, it has no known drug interactions according to, to information available. But it can have overlapping um, side effects. So that would be more in the pharmacodynamic area um, with some of these antidepressants. Um, I'd have to dig in a little bit deeper on some of the mechanisms of actions um, with those pharmaceuticals, um, fair but, enough. But Let, I, let's talk yeah. about in use then. All right. So, so maybe maybe I caught you off guard with the actual uh, pharmacodynamics. But w- if you are taking, um, you know, one of these SSRIs, would these would the side effects that you would want to be cautious of when taking cannabis the same ones as the benzodiazepams? Are we are we with the SSRIs? Are we still talking about? Um, um, uh, uh, like loss of dexterity and and you know sedation and difficulty driving cars yeah. or or are we talking about something you know potentially more serious like uh, you know serotonin poisoning or something I don't know I'm just I'm just guessing right so you might I think you might experience um like you know so some of the SSRIs specifically right um citalopram I think is a pretty popular one. It's extensively mes- uh, metabolized by um, CYP2C19, one of the alphabet soup things I mentioned in the beginning of this thing, which is one of the major enzymes that metabolize cannabinoids. And so you could run the risk of having cannabinoids be a victim of an interaction, which could make them more or less effective, make them more likely to have an unwanted effect. Um, Again, just going back to that analogy of the guy strutting around town with nothing to do, might walk down the down street or just 
you know, it's okay to sit in the middle of the street when it's not busy and do your work that you need to do, but it can get more dangerous the longer you sit there. So uh, again, just to try and cobble together an analogy. Um, so I think with the, some of those SSRIs, you might be thinking it could be go either way, victim or perpetrator. And this is, you know, kind of at the limit, I think, of a lot of information out there. Um, if Even if you go, you know, I worked with uh, uh, with Penn State. They have a cannabis research center there and, and been advising and participating with their center. And they put up um, uh, like, a, like a little database where you can put in cannabinoids and look up uh, potential drug-drug interactions. And, you know, it's it's like, I think of it like this, like they've made the beach and a little bit of shoreline and you can wade into the water and explore what's there. But if you want to go any deeper and like see dolphins and, you know, the shipwrecks and things, we're not there yet with being able to go to that level of exploration. But we do know that SSRIs and cannabinoids do share common routes of metabolism. And that could be um, something to think about. Um, you know, because not every SSRI goes through the the same um, sip, but a lot of them do. All right. the 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 last um, medicine category I want to I want to touch on. Um, it may be a specialty that you may or may not like. You know, overlap with, but but what about um, uh, children? Children's medicines, right? Because um, you know the fact that uh, children who have got you know a range of issues, you know, very very easily pointing at like immunocompromised type kids, like they have uh, literally been the poster children for cannabis medicine and helping to expand it, you know, over the last 20 years, because, um, you know, the way that cannabis medicine helps kids, uh, it, 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 it pulls at your heartstrings and people are like, yes, these kids should be able to be using cannabis oil for their seizures and, and let's get this law passed. Right. And so, um, uh, would you have anything to add about interaction between, um, um, cannabinoids, which might be coming from a parent who is feeling desperate, and other pharmaceuticals that they might already be on. And just to be, reiterate, we are not giving medical advice. All we're doing is pointing out things for um, caregivers to stay aware of. I am so glad that we're talking about this, because so often when we talk about healthy, normal adult volunteers in a research study, we extrapolate that to the entire population. And in the absence of pediatric drug-drug information, adult information is used. Um, however, there are subtle differences in development and all sorts of things between children and adults. I mean, just look at the differences between a two-year-old and an eight-year-old and a 15-year-old, right? There, mm-hmm. There's a huge, you know, and so the magnitude of a drug-drug interaction in a pediatric patient population may differ from adults because of age-dependent changes. Puberty and prepubescent, for example, can change the drug disposition or response. Um, You know, in some of the early studies with uh, THC compounds in pediatric populations, like by the late Raphael Mishulam, you know, they Mm -hmm. didn't really see what they thought what they would see in adults given that compound. Um, and, you know, the brains are still in a high state of development. And so, you know, there may not be the same response to THC 
or other cannabinoids. And there could be other factors, dose, formulation, the disease state, the body mass, things like that. And I'll say again, that the, the, it needs to be assessed in children separately from adults. And, and this is a challenging thing, but careful consideration. You need to account for age-dependent changes, um, and you have to build a little more confidence um, about that. But it is absolutely a concern, um, and it may, you know, these, these again, these DDIs are rep- routinely performed in healthy adult volunteers in early clinical studies. But, you know, it's, there's a lot of ethical, logistical, and method challenges to, you know, doing these types of study in pediatric patients. I mean, you know, uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to get like a four-year-old to fill out a, a form or a survey. <laughs> Might be a little tricky. Um, adults can can do that thing just fine. So I think there's a whole range of it. But, you know, po- pediatric patients in the hospital often receive multiple drugs. And so there are efforts to characterize um, those things. Um, I, I like yeah. this phrase that you've got age-dependent changes. And I know that you were talking about kids, but that definitely applies to adults too. Because I know that um, the effects that, um, you know, uh, my, my plant-based drugs and fungus-based drugs and my pharmaceutical-based drugs, they have all changed as I've gotten older and my reaction to it. You know, I was kind of impervious in my 20s. And now, you know, I'm a little more aware because it's, you know, it's easier to knock me out of balance. But I like that phrase, age-dependent changes. Yeah. Um, so well, I, got, I could give uh-huh. one solid example. All right, give me this is a across-the-board example. Cannabis is not special. I'm just going to say across-the-board Anytime there's, a, I think, morphine and opioids, fentanyl, um, combined with anything in a clinical setting, um, can have effects on respiratory depression. And so that is something, I think, especially when we talk about chronic diseases, hospitalization, outpatient stuff, you know, just because in adult populations we're observing this phenomenon of um, decreased opioid um, overdoses and deaths in adult populations. Again, this is a thing like we talk about the age dependence, right? It may not be quite as clear cut in pediatric populations. So I just want to throw that out there. Is like, um, you know, you can you can look this up. Uh, don't take my word for it. Do some of your own research. <laughs> but again, you can find a lot of information about well, these are the potential most difficult areas. Right on. So I've got two more questions before we wrap up here. Um, I know that, uh, you know, it was our goal today to not answer every potential question that could be asked about this because there's, it's just too complex. We would need 20 more minutes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But, but our goal was to help give, give patients and caregivers a, um, a, a perspective of how to suss out their solutions in their unique situation. And so I want to, I want to uh, kind of like, uh, th- you kind of like throw you this, this kind of umbrella question for you to, to answer here. Um, in what manner would you recommend patients and caregivers go about their own research to discover if they may be having, you know, 
interactions between their pharma and their cannabis. Very specifically, let's say that either, you know, you're the patient or you're the caregiver and you're like, you know what? I I think that might be what we're seeing. What would you say is their first and their second step to try to suss that out? Keep uh, meticulous records. Um, You know, and that doesn't have to mean you're journaling all day. It just means that you are a bit vigilant about that. You're controlling your inputs. Um, So, you know, if you're like, oh, I went to brunch and and drank four mimosas and then I took my medicine and then later that night I smoked cannabis and boy, did I feel funny. I must have had a drug-drug interaction with cannabis and those, um, you know, my my prescription meds. Well, it could be the alcohol, could be other things. So, And then could be diet also plays a role. So I think first thing to do, get a journal, find the criteria, find some baseline things. Um, there's no shortage, I think, of like questionnaires. You could even draw smiley faces. Like, do I feel frowny face today? Do I feel flatline smile today? Um, that's a, you know, people use those types of charts um, and things like that, um, different scales. So find your scales, find your measurements. Um, but again, I think um, uh, keeping track of what you, you know, I have a, talk to patients and caregivers in the past and sometimes they say hey if you have a label on a product take a picture keep a digital journal if you want to do it it's almost like a scrapbook you have a journal you you can peel off the product label put it in your journal or write down the information from it and keep track of what you're taking when you're taking it um, and, and when you're taking other things and this is even a strategy that's used for pharmaceutical drugs where doctors will be like okay well you're taking drug x i'm going to prescribe you drug y if you take them both in the morning and you feel X or Y, then, then then take this drug two hours later. Take it four hours later. Take it six hours later. And so start by taking, if you're new to this, everything, you know, this is based on literature that's out there. Russo and, and McCallum have a great paper on, on dosing strategies and, you know, taking things at night and low amounts. If that's okay, feels all right, you don't feel the DDIs, you can you know, start to play with the timing and the dosing and finding that range where you're not getting adverse effects. But again, if you don't feel good, um, you know, it's, it's not great. If you get, if you get like all the side effects of cannabis, like, Oh man, I feel sedated. I feel hungry. My mouth is dry. Uh, I feel dizzy and I can't remember anything. Yeah. That's like a lot of boxes to check and, and you, and that may not be what you're looking for from a product. And so again, I think it has to do with um, keeping track of the inputs, control as many variables as you can. Um, and I think you'll start to, you'll find that there's a lot of things to be like, well, I've been drinking caffeine all day and, uh, <laughs> or, I, or I haven't been drinking it all day. And so I think finding those baselines um, will is, help you. Is there a database that you recommend more than Google? Because after the patient journals and they've got some suspicions, they're probably going to search these drugs and cannabis and see what they get. And Google may be our best option. And I'm always a big fan of the projectcbd.org conditions <laughs> section because that, that's always great too. But um, is, is Google still our best bet? Um, I mean, until AI takes over? Um, you know, you know, the internet can be helpful and I would look for multiple resources that corroborate your evidence. Don't just take the computer's word for it. 
find a couple references online from different types of sources. Maybe the Mayo Clinic, maybe PubMed.gov, maybe from uh, a webinar where there's a doctor talking about stuff. Like, use, use a, you know, you have to take on this challenge using all available resources to do that. Because things often, just because the same study is cited over and over and over again, doesn't mean the study itself is reproducible and the results are translatable to you. And so finding, um, you know, the information from diverse sources, finding the same thing, the same results from different people running the studies and, and different reputable organizations coming to the same conclusions, you know, that will help. Um, you know, as they say, try and find something written, something you can watch, something someone you can talk to to corroborate the evidence. Um, and so I think, you know, that that is um, just kind of where we're at because AI and the internet love to lie to you. <laughs> you know, they, there's, that's the ongoing thing. Like, wow, AI will just make stuff up to make you happy. It knows what you want to hear or want to read or want to see. Um, and we have to always be suspicious if we're getting, you know, exactly, hearing exactly what we want to hear. Um, you know, you're probably about to buy a used car. So just be be careful out there. Um, and, and I think that what I would say is try and test things. You know, if, if okay, if I believe X, let me try and stretch out X as far as it can go. This line of thinking until it breaks. Where is it? Where is the weakness in this this uh, rationale? Whatever it is you're looking at, drug drug interactions, their significance, their their not significance. So the last question um, I want to hit on with the, our last two minutes here is uh, I, I want to uh, go back to and plug the budsinfo.com project. You and I have talked about that, um, you know, uh, b- before we started. And, and uh, you know, the, the listeners of Shaping Fire knows that we support um, cannabis research and we are always trying to plug um uh, research that we know where is going on. We participated in, you know, Ethan Russo's, you know, CBD and CBG projects before sending people their way. And, um, you know, you've told me about the the good folks behind uh, budsinfo.com and, and I looked it up and it, and it looks like something legitimate. So, so my question for you is, is, is what does the research look like to unearth these interactions that you and I have been discussing today? And, you know, um, what kind of research is happening? What does that look like? And then give me a, a brief plug for budsinfo.com and then we'll wrap up. <laughs> sure. So, you know, my exploration and research has been, you know, a lot of frustration with getting funding yeah. and grants. And, you know, in some ways, you know, you're always waiting on grants and, and maybe private funding from the industry and stuff. And as time has gone on, I found more and more ways where I just said, you know what, this summer, I'm just going to do the dang research and I'm not going to wait for funding. I'm going to bootstrap this. You know, I believe in it. I'm going to invest in it. And there's so many databases out there. There's so much you can find at the tips of your fingers if you're just willing to spend time doing it. And, and, And so unearthing the research for me, you know, um, 
doing case reports, contacting clinicians, and starting to unearth these things where they have these patient files. No one, they're busy clinicians. They don't have time to go through them. Some of most of it's like, you know, not, it's like, I can't read this. This is not like the best of it. You find nuggets, you find signals. You know, it's like, it's like searching for extraterrestrial life. And suddenly you hear an alien TV show and you're like, what is going on here? And you're like, I picked up a signal, you know? Um, and I have to say, digging through, we had a paper come out recently about Delta-8 THC derived from hemp, and we comb through, um, you know, the, the lead epidemiologist um, on the paper, you know, brought this to our attention. Hey, there's this database, we can access it, we can run these queries, we got a whole team together to go through the data. And it's really exciting because, you know, this is data that people are reporting to the FDA, to poison control centers and it's just floating around nobody wants to comb through it and and i I, we requested more and more information they sent us case reports hospital files you know the products uh scanned and pictures of the products along with the reports from the patients and why they showed up to the er what they were feeling and we came to realize that, one, the classification system for how these things are entering the database is not useful. I'll give you an example. Uh, psilocybin has a, an E at the end of it in the FDA database. So if you search psilocybin, you will find nothing. But if you search psilocybin, you will. Oh, um, so if you, if you look up uh, cannabinoid, you may not find anything. If you look up... You know, you, you you know. So think about delta nine THC. Is it plus minus version or the minus minus version? Like what what version is it? Um, so th- there are some issues around there. So it takes a bit of knowing what you're looking for. But that led us to create Buds Info. We're like, you know, there's an explosion of product diversity here. And you know, as a colleague told me, where are the guardrails? And um, and so we we decided to bootstrap this. So budsinfo.com please check it out please scan it we are trying to use this to centralize the collection of data standardize the data right now if there is an issue with a cannabis product hemp product and a vulnerable population it goes to local state or city centers and eventually makes it or not at all to a central database so we may not, we may never, some of this stuff we may be quite late to the game to uncover. So it's been very, I have to say, it's been very exciting to be sort of on this forefront of public health where we're finding signals and very specific ones. Um, you know, you know as, as you would expect, there are not a lot of adverse events for whole plant cannabis compared to other products. Oddly enough, there's not a lot of adverse events being reported yet for psychedelics, but it might be, again, because people can't find psilocybin in the database to report it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there are a lot of interesting issues where we've been comparing and trying to figure out, are we using the right metrics to detect these signals? And again, it's not about saying cannabis is good or bad. It's about we want everyone's ship to reach a safe harbor and we want to know where that big rock is in the harbor so you don't run aground. And, and right on. I, 
Yeah. Let's bring this on home there, uh, Jehan. So so what you want to do, dear listener, is go to budsinfo.com. There is a short form there for you. Um, it is very easy to fill out. And the questions are about um, if you've ever had adverse experiences with cannabis and for you to describe that. Um, I went ahead and filled one out. It took me like like four minutes tops. And yep. uh, and Jehan, they're, they're, they're all uh, anonymous, right? So they're not going into like some tagged database or anything right Uh, absolutely not it is completely anonymous we're doing this in full compliance so that we don't need an irb board so the great thing about research is learning how to be like when you need certain things and when you don't so it's totally anonymized this was started by students it's largely run by students um, and we are trying to perfect this and we think that versus trying to find the med form watch um or a poison control center form i think we have figured out the as you you just said it, it takes four minutes to fill out and it's easy and again what will help federally regulate and federally legalize cannabis is knowing the risks and and i i strongly believe that that if we can clearly communicate that we know what the risks are and we're continuing to a commitment to track what those might be that i don't think anything will stand in the way of complete legalization and regulation of cannabis. Fantastic. Well, uh, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today on Shaping Fire again after all of this time. Uh, you know, um, this is an incredibly complex area of work, and I am grateful that you are, you know, dedicating your expertise to it amongst some of your, your other areas you love, because uh, we really do need to get to the bottom of this, not only for, you know, patient care, uh, but also so that we can can get you know normalization to have be more grounded and have its feet under itself better because uh, you know we we are we are still a long way from that and um, and and so thank you for coming and sharing your your expertise and your stories and uh, and you know your your goodly nature uh, with us today uh, so that we could enjoy it. Uh, thank you and uh thank you very much i guess i'll see you in 80 episodes yeah there you go well (laughs) hopefully sooner than that (laughs) right on so if if you want to um uh hear more from jehan marku and you know you do um uh uh, he's got a couple of great places for you to go well first of all let's go ahead and plug uh episode 29 of shaping fire about the cannabis product manufacturing standards um but uh, jehan's uh uh instagram is great uh you'll be able to hear about what he is in to from week to week and also where he'll be speaking and uh, that's just simply at his name uh jahan marku at j-a-h-a-n-m-a-r-c-u so that's his instagram and also he's also uh, pretty active on uh, twitter and uh that is also his name at jahan marku um also if you're interested in any of the aspects that i uh, talked about either at the top of the show or came up along the way about uh about his consulting uh for for companies or uh, legal folks, or if you've gotten busted for DUI, um, uh, you want to go to uh, their his consulting website, which is marku auroracom and so that's marku M A R C U dash Aurora A R 
O-R-A.com. And then um, if, if you want to uh, hear him wax brilliant um, about the uh, cannabis industry, um, uh, he has launched a, uh, a relatively new podcast called How to Launch an Industry. And it's all about the, 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 the birthing and stabilization of, of the cannabis industry and, and, and what our best practices going forward. And that is at howtolaunchanindustry.com. You can listen to the episode episodes there, um, as well as uh, anywhere that you download your podcasts. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.